This is Playback Daily for Tuesday the 13th of September with me, Gemma Craddock. We had in this country, of course, the obsession with the immersion. Uh, I can still remember the sign, you know, switch it off. Mm -hmm. It's probably still there in the house that I grew up with. We were just fortunate that we were in such a position that me and Brina were a match that I was able to carry out the the donation. Um, I suppose if we were to go Hold back... Hold on now, you're making it sound like you gave her a fiver. <laughs> <laughs> the donation you're speaking about is a kidney. Now I haven't seen Michael Flatley's movie and some of the photographs look rather tragic, I think. But, you know, he's he's a... He, but he's a showman. Don't and hold you, back. You remember, in, in his show he had whole sequence <laughs> with hats. And it was a packed day on Radio 1 with everything from an audience with rock royalty to an I do with an incredible twist. But let's get started with a little bit of history. For many of us, turn off the immersion was the battle cry of a generation of prudent parents. And history is clearly repeating itself. The word unprecedented is bandied around a lot in relation to the energy and inflation crises we're facing into. But on Today with Claire Byrne, the uncanny parallels between the current situation and that faced by Irish people in the 1970s were expounded by Professor of Modern Irish History at UCD, Dermot Ferreter. I suppose there's, there's two different crises. There's the early 1970s and then the late 1970s because there's a second crisis really in 1979. That has huge knock-on consequences for economic management right into the 1980s. But when you look back at 1973, this was a short, sharp war. When you consider the attack on Israel by Egypt and Syria and what it did then, obviously America supported Israel and there was a retaliation in terms of uh, an embargo on oil. And also you had this massive increase in the price of oil. Now, without getting bogged down the statistics, you could get oil at $2 a barrel uh, before this. And ultimately it went up to $12 a barrel and hovered at that level. And there was a quadrupling. Mm-hmm. of the uh, price of oil. Now, we've got to consider the huge dependency on oil That's the in the thing, 1970s. It's a di- different time. It's a completely and different time. Almost and complete reliance. Yeah, and for us, we were reliant on oil for 75% of our energy needs. And there was a very high dependence in Europe generally, and we were even above that average. I mean, the, the averages were between 50 and 70%, and we were 75%. So it, the effects were immediate. And people of a certain generation, of course, will remember different aspects of that, including, of course, the the queues to get petrol and, and the rationing of petrol and energy. And an awful lot of the messages that we heard this morning, even from the Taoiseach, you know, they are very much in keeping with the messages from the 1970s. The context has changed and we talk about gas now. But Richie Ryan, who was the Minister for Finance at the end of 1973... <laughs> I mean, he made a speech to the Shannon in December 1973 and he said, our entire future is threatened by a combination of the oil crisis, rampant inflation and a hike in interest rates. And there you go. But the question is, how do you respond to that as a government? And, you know, Richie Ryan was a formidable politician and was well able to hold his own and he could be vituperative uh, in his correspondence with his colleagues who wanted more money to be spent on their particular areas. But he also had to introduce supplementary and emergency budgets to deal with the cost of living crisis because mm-hmm. that was the other uh, side of it. And like, it's not that the Irish economy is a basket case in the 1970s because there are periods of the 1970s when the Irish economy performs very well. There's a lot of wealth around. And it's interesting looking back at the assessment of economists and social, polyan- uh, social policy analysts in the 1970s because they were distinguishing between those who could stay ahead of the inflation game and those who couldn't. 
and you're talking about the price of necessities, but you're also talking about a demand for wage increases. And there was a national pay agreement in 1974 where there were proposed wage increases of up to 29% to try and keep on top of inflation because inflation was hovering between 15 and over 20% during those years. Mm -hmm. So they really are strikingly high figures. Gosh, it's almost a complete replication of what we have It is. And you know what? The governor of the central bank who stood down in 1975 was the famous T.K. Whitaker, And Whitaker kept writing to the government. You can see all these letters in the National Archives. Kept writing to Richie Ryan saying, you can't chase inflation with hefty wage increases. The public finances are not on a sustainable path. And it, I mean, he was too diplomatic in 1975 when he stood down to say precisely why he was standing down. But it was well known the reason he was standing down, because he only served one term as governor of the central bank, was because the government wouldn't follow his advice. But you can see the pressure that was on them. And, you know, Ken or TK Whitaker would have made the point that once you start to open up a hole in the national finances to deal with the crisis, it becomes almost impossible to close it for mm-hmm. political reasons. So you can see how these messages resonate down through. Whereas the- now we're talking about using a surplus. So it's a slightly different scenario. Oh, very much. I mean, his fear, of course, was that you were borrowing uh, yes. to do this. Now, we're still borrowing, obviously. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the state of the national finances certainly are different. But it's interesting to look at the messages that were being communicated to, to homeowners. Because when it comes down to it, how does it affect them in their day-to-day life? And this is where you get an emphasis on turning down the thermostat. This is where you get an emphasis in some European countries on car-free Sundays. And you have the creation of a Department of Energy in the United States. And there's an urgency around this. We have to find alternative forms of energy. The United Kingdom was in a very bad situation. It was a humiliating decade for the UK. They ended up having to accept a loan from the International Monetary Fund, which really wounded their pride. They had to uh, to resort to a three-day working week mm-hmm. uh, at one stage, and the Tory government of Ted Heath loses power in, in 1974 because inflation has gone over 20%. So it has massive ramifications in political terms. And what was the conversation like here on finding alternative energy sources? We were talking nuclear at that point. Well, interestingly, at the end of 19. 19- 1973, the ESB was authorised to begin to look at the possibility of a nuclear plant. And they were looking at various different locations around the country. Now, the obvious question is, how is that going to go down with the communities in the areas that are being proposed? And of course, the chosen spot eventually was Carnesore uh, in Wexford, and that became uh, a site of considerable protest and opposition. It was quietly dropped uh, in the late 1970s. But at the time, Des O'Malley, who was the Minister for, for Industry and Commerce, he was quite scathing about friends of the earth, as he referred to them sarcastically uh, in the Dáil. Uh, but there was, in tandem with this oil crisis, you see, there's a growing awareness of the consequences of finding alternatives and what it might mean for the environment, what it might mean in terms of pollution. And of course, there was fear about uh, nuclear power. But there were others who were emphasising that it was a good, clean and safe option compared to this dependence on oil. On oil. And what about exploiting Ireland's gas resources? Yeah, well, we had Kinsale, you know, and there's a lot of ambiguity uh, around the oil companies and those who are exploring and those who have different types of licences. And there was often political controversy about whether they were getting particularly good deals and and what the return would be to the state and so on. A lot of that is shrouded uh, in in mystery and confusion uh, throughout the 1970s. But there was that same fear that the oil companies would exploit 
this situation and would have excessive profits. And again, you know, we're back in that space now in relation to the possibility of, of controlling them or, or the relationship between the oil industry uh, and politics. So that's very much of the 1970s as well. But also what's interesting is that, you know, there are positive developments. For example, smaller cars. Because you're looking at these big beasts of machines <laughs> that are guzzling uh, this oil. And you have the emergence of the hatchback, you know, the Fiat, mm-hmm. and the Golf, the Peugeot, Japanese companies as well. But that has not gone consequences for uh, industry, the, the older car industry, particularly in, in, in Britain as well. So, you know, change brings around uh, a lot of discomfort. But people were also being advised on a household level. You can see the ESB ads now. Uh, not just about turning down the temperature, lagging, insulation, proper insulation. At one stage, there was a great fear about heating schools because they were eating up oil. And there was a proposal at one stage in 1979 for the second oil crisis that during the heating season, you would have a four-day school week and then during the non-heating season, you'd have a six-day school week. Right. Now, that did not come to pass, but it was a measure of the scale of the crisis the that problem. they were facing and what they were looking at. And the Taoiseach mentioned schools again uh, this morning yeah. and, and the problems that they face with the capitation grants not going far enough. So you mentioned that this was a two-part crisis and you've addressed 1973. Then what happened later in the 70s? Well, I mean, there's further instability uh, in, in the Middle East. Iran is a big crisis, of course, in, in 1979 um, with the overthrow of, of the regime. Uh, and again, it, it's, it, it doesn't take much to bring the West to its knees, you know, particularly if the Arab countries are going to use oil as a weapon. Now, they can't use oil as a weapon, you know, in in the long term, in the way they might like. But it's that short-term shock that throws national finances uh, out of kilter again. And you can see again the crisis of of, of the cost of living. Mm -hmm. And the question is, how much can a government do to intervene? I mean, that arises again. Can you expand your way out? of a cost of living crisis like that uh, or an economy that's in trouble. I mean, that was the preferred solution uh, in the late 1970s. 1977 was the famous uh, election victory for Fianna Fáil on the back of a giveaway manifesto. We'll expand to get ourselves out of this crisis. And I I suppose to be fair to that coalition government of 1973 to 1977, they did significantly increase welfare payments to, to stay ahead of inflation. And there's quite an amusing exchange between Frank Kluski, who was the Labour Minister in charge uh, of, of, of welfare, uh, and Richie Ryan, who I mentioned, the Minister for Finance. They meet each other for the first time after the, the resounding defeat of that coalition government in 1977. And Frank Kluski, in his own inimitable Dublin way, said to Richie Ryan, Jesus, you were right about the welfare increases. You always said we get no thanks for the welfare <laughs> increases. Of course, he expressed it in a much more colourful yeah. way than I am now. And that's um, still said, isn't it? But there's an interesting point here. Do you get a political return for spending heavily in responding uh, to a cost of living crisis? You know, are you still going to be regarded as having not done enough? Mm-hmm. That's just of the, the scale of, of, of inflation. And, and is that what of, happened in that election? Oh, they got whacked. Mm. They got whacked. Because the, the perception was that you haven't yeah. solved the problem Absolutely. in full, yeah. therefore you can you're see gone. the letters, you know, from the public going into the Department of Taoiseach in the days when people wrote handwritten letters to the government about what they were facing on a day-to-day level. You know, people writing in about giving up meat, for example. I can't afford to eat meat anymore. And, and the necessities that they are struggling to put on the table. So, you know, again, the, you know, there are a lot of, of, of very similar messages today. Um, so that obviously has a huge 
knock-on effect in terms of, of, of confidence in the government uh, of a day. So you can appreciate that they are uh, facing particular uh, challenges. But there's also, there was a very amusing story published in Hibernia in 1976 about the Minister for Finance himself. Richie Ryan went into a well-known hardware store to buy bathroom fittings and the bill was in the region of £700. So that was a lot of money in the 1970s. And he was so appalled uh, at the price that he refused to pay it. Uh, and he was particularly perturbed at the rate of VAT <laughs> and the cost of VAT on these particular fittings. Now, you would have thought that he would have known uh, as the Minister for Finance, yeah. but it just shows, it just shows <laughs> you. Uh, and Hibernia was able to quite gleefully report that in, in 1976. That he wouldn't pay for the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> kind of fits with the characterisation that we have of him. What was happening in the United States? Because just when you're looking at now, I know that gas prices, as they call them, they're not rising at the same rates mm. as they are here because they have their own uh, supply. In the 1970s, was the crisis as bad there? Oh, no, 1970s, I mean, it, it is a crisis to the point where they do set up that new Department of Energy. President Richard Nixon is adamant that they have to urgently look at alternative solutions. And it's titled Project Independence. We have to become self-sufficient when it comes to our energy needs and our fuel needs. Fracking in Alaska, you know, and in the same way, Britain, you know, you go to the North Sea, you try and find your own uh, reserves. And yeah. they considerable success uh, in relation to that. So it becomes quite an issue in the United States. And of course, there's also dealing with the consequences of an energy sapping lifestyle, which has been a part of, of the previous few decades, particularly when oil is so cheap and what they were spending it on, you know, when it came to things like uh, air conditioning and obviously the, the fuel goesters that we mentioned. So it is a political priority. And again, in the late 1970s, you know, there are a few stunts. Uh, later, President Jimmy Carter dons a sweater, you know, to emphasise that you can make small, simple changes uh, yourself uh, when it comes to, uh, comes to heating. We had in this country, of course, the obsession with the immersion. Uh, I can still remember the sign, you know, switch it off. Mm -hmm. It's probably still there in the house that I grew up with. Um, so Were your parents put that there, did they? They did, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I, I don't think that was unusual, you know. And I mean, a lot of us will remember the obsession with turning things off. Yeah, but um, that still goes on. I mean, we all turn into that person. But we're certainly we? going to have a, a, an updated version <laughs> of that uh, this winter. And a lot of that is sensible stuff. And we do need to think as well about the changed context. You know, you could quote Bob Dylan. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. Mm -hmm. You know, there were, there was talk of solar energy and wind energy in the Back 1970s, uh, again, as an alternative, as a possibility, particularly solar energy in Japan, for example. Uh, and they were encouraging workers uh, to go in, in in more casual work attire so that they wouldn't be dependent on the <laughs> air conditioning in hotter countries. Of course, formality was a big deal there as well. Very much, yeah, you know, yeah. but, you know, th this would be a big culture change, but, you know, they have to respond to the needs at mm -hmm. the moment. What about the silver linings then to the 1970s crisis here? Were there any? Well, the silver lining, I suppose, is thinking about alternative energy supplies, mm -hmm. uh, a proper debate uh, about what the future of our energy needs will be and what, about what the knock-on effect so will be. So it forced a rethink. But it also forced the emergence of Green parties. You know, we forget this sometimes. And they, they were the ecology parties then. Uh, they start to come on board in the late 70s and the early 1980s. They're very interested, obviously, in, in energy and the energy crisis. Uh, and what further depletion of the natural resources of the earth will mean for the future of the earth. Uh, and when we talk about silver linings today, it is about wind. It is about decreasing, obviously, dependency on, on the car and fossil fuels. And that's very much a part of, of policy now anyway. So investment, research and focus moved to that back then. Uh, yes, but also the way now we can link it to climate change. You know, we can do that in a much 
uh, more profound way because we have to because of the scale of the crisis. So, you know, when we talk about silver linings, it's not going to be of much comfort, of course, to people who are facing a cost of, of, of living crisis. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you consider the wider issue there of the planet and the welfare of the planet, uh, you've got to link the two of them now. Dermot Ferriter, Professor of Modern Irish History at UCD in conversation with Claire Byrne. In a successful and enduring relationship, you offer up your heart. But it's a different internal organ that ties this couple together. On The Ray Darcy Show, Brianna and Shane shared their incredible love story. Now, now, tomorrow is an anniversary of sorts as well. You got married in August, but tomorrow is what? The anniversary of what? It was when we first kind of met oh, right. 13 years ago, yeah, in Karma, in Athlone. Karma? Is that, is that the name? Karma. What's that? It's a nightclub in Athlone. So oh, couple, right. 13 years ago, yeah. But you, did you know each other? You were on, did you know each other before that, Shane? Uh, we did, yeah. We were kind of somewhat familiar, given that I was good friends with her sister, Saoirse, back then. Oh, you were good friends with her sister? Yeah. You're right. Yeah. And, and Saoirse is Brina's older sister? She is. She is, right. yeah. Okay. And you were just friends? That's all. Yeah, okay, all right, okay. And, and, and what? You have a lovely expression there I read in the brief. You said you, you threw an eye to Brina the odd time. The odd time, yeah. It was never, um, it was never returned until that night in Karma. But... Right, right. And what, what was different about that night, Brina? I'm not quite sure. I don't know. Was it the vodka or two? Or yeah. <laughs> what happened that night? But um, I know he just—he was a nice lad. So yeah, <laughs> I danced my arm. And you—you you hadn't noticed him, had you not? No, he tried to help me with maths one time when I was 15, but um, he wasn't too good at that. So <laughs> <laughs> I paid no heed on him. So I, I do, I do sort of fancied Brina from afar, Shane, for a while. Uh, it was probably maybe about two two years before that. Yeah, I'd kind of taken notice, all right. Yeah, yeah. And just would have met her a couple of times, but uh, it wasn't until Karma, I suppose, when I showed no interest in that that sparked her interest. To be honest. Right, right. Karma is very important in in life, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so that's how many years tomorrow? Thirteen years ago 13. tomorrow. Wow. Yeah, thirteen. <laughs> mad. That, it is mad, yeah. And you got married in August. Yeah. Got married in August. Yeah, the first. First of August. Now tell me about the wedding because they're really unusual. Fo- well, to me, they look unusual photographs. It, it, it looks. Where did you get married? Where is the location? So Mount Druid in Castletown Gagan. It's just here um, near Mullingar, actually. It's yeah. a lovely um, kind of alternative uh, venue. You kind of have the whole place and it's glamping and ah, yeah. it's just so relaxed, really suits our vibe. <laughs> right. And is, is, is that a barn you're standing in or what? <laughs> that one is the, that's the Tin Chapel. So that's oh, that's the Tin Chapel. Married. Oh, that's the Tin that's Chapel. The tin right. Chapel. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And how no, many were at the value. wedding? How many were at the wedding? Uh, we had about 150, 160. Yeah. Right. Good sized nice wedding. One. Yeah. Yeah, we were delighted to kind of get the near full numbers, you know, back from because yeah. we were postponed from last year. So. Um, how would you describe your dress to us? Oh, uh, very me, <laughs> very boho. Right. Go um, on. You, you, yeah, you know all a, the details now. Don't be shy. <laughs> It's a t- it was a two-piece, so everybody was kind of shocked by that. And then I got my dressmaker to add the arms on and a few different bits to it. So being an artist, I kind of wanted to change it up a bit. Right. Are, are you teach yeah. art where? Um, I'm in Mullingar Community College. Um, I'm kind of just putting my hand on a few different things at the moment um, right. with art and, yeah, um, yeah, SDN and a few bits. It's, it's, it's a beautiful yeah, it's dress, a beautiful dress. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and Shane, you're wearing a wine suit. It seems to have a bit of a sheen on it in the pictures. Yeah, it's- very chic, Ray. Yeah, very chic <laughs> as opposed to a sheen, right? 
Very this season. Yeah, very, very, very this season, right? I always go for three seasons ago. You get them cheaper. But anyway, now the reason your story is so wonderful. Firstly, your your childhood sweethearts. That's and that's always lovely. Um, and secondly, you know, Shane, you've done one of the most selfless things you could do for somebody else. Um, go on. Very kind of you to say, but it's something that I, I think everyone, if they were in that position, they'd only be happy to do. And we were just fortunate that we were in such a position that me and Brina were a match that I was able to carry out the the donation. And um, I suppose if we were to go hold back, on now, you're making it sound like you gave her a fiver. <laughs> <laughs> the donation you're speaking about is a kidney. Yeah. Yes. So you gave Brina one of your kidneys. Well, I had two. So, yes. Now that's that's H A D T W O as opposed to H A D T O O or T O I should say. You didn't have to because you could. <laughs> you know, you didn't have to. Um, so so how did so Brina you then? So you were at college and you were getting tired when other people weren't weren't getting tired, and you thought there might be something up here. Yeah. So I was kind of I was in college and. Of anybody and five days a week and then work on the weekends but I used to have to take every Monday off <laughs> and sleep for the day so I kind of started to notice that wasn't normal and um, I got some bloods done and then that kind of showed up that there was something not right and from then then it was just kind of to keep an eye on me over a couple of years to figure out there was no reason in for it um, and I guess we just watched my kidney function drop over the last number of years until I was ready for kidney transplant or dialysis, whichever was the route. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so then there's, there's there's a number of things you can do. Uh, you can just go on the list and wait till a donor becomes available um, because of a, a tragedy in somebody else's life. Um, yeah. or, or else you can look around to people in your life and see if there's anybody who will match up and donate and is willing to donate a kidney. Yeah, we were very fortunate in that, I suppose. Um, my, both my mom and Shane went forward to get checked, and both of them were actually a match. Wow! And yeah, we weren't. Uh, we were quite naive, actually, thinking. I, I just had always assumed I'd get one from them or some from somebody, and I never realised that what pe- other people are going through, yeah. waiting for years and years for um, for a donor, um, which is quite tough, especially if you're on dialysis. It's it's very difficult on people. It can be a very lonely place. So. Yeah. Um, We're very fortunate. Very fortunate that both your mum and Shane... Uh, yeah. And Shane, talk us through the chats. Did you, you did you volunteer yourself? Was it always going to be the case or what way did it go? Um, it, it was just with ourselves. Kind of, we, we talked about it leading up to the test and that, again, like Brian said, it was kind of naively thinking that, well, sure, I'll be a match and we won't have to worry about anything else. But when it came down to it then and myself and Gina were both matches... Um, the decision was kind of made there and then by me to say that well look I think given that um, a young male kidney is seen as being that bit stronger mm. it would probably be a good idea for me to go forward with the safety net then of having a close family me- member Yes, um, if something goes wrong yeah. That's it, yeah. yeah Can you put into words how that has changed your relationship Brina? Um, I suppose we were always very close myself and Shane and I think it kind of it gave Shane a feeling of being able to help me because I was so he felt I was you know he couldn't help with anything with the kidney failure um, in that sense but we've always been very close and I think it, it just made us stronger again and 
I suppose we, you, you don't sweat the little things because you know there's so many bigger, yeah. harder things to have to deal with. So we really we have a good relationship in that sense. We don't right. we don't fight over the small things. So was it referred to in the best man speech, Shane? <laughs> um, he, he yeah, it was touched on. But again, it's I think the big thing for us is the outcome yes. rather than um, how we got there, John. You know, yes, yeah. Like again, this isn't something that we are very comfortable talking about but we know the benefits to the Irish Kidney Association by yes. highlighting Oh no, no and, and you're brilliant and that's, it's important that people like you tell their stories so it gets people talking because people have to talk and they have to discuss donation um, so it, it's, it's important what you're doing um, Yeah, so and when did it happen? So two years ago I think it was June right. twenty. 22nd yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. and you're yeah. obviously both came out the other side oh flying it flying yeah. it yeah. because that's not a given either is it no no we're fortunate in that I suppose the age as well kind of um, within uh, two months we were both back ex- well I was exercising anyways for the first time in years because I couldn't walk up a stairs yeah. um, so to be able to you know practice yoga and go to the gym was even just like that walk up the stairs was amazing. <laughs> so, so you, you saw... take that little things for granted. Yeah. So Shane, you saw nearly an immediate change in the woman you loved. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it was, I think within three weeks, um, you could see the difference. You know, just... Yeah. And I, I don't mean to sound, you know, trite here, but it, it is a beautiful thing. It's, it, it's a beautiful, you know, it's, it's just, uh, I'm lost for words because it's, you know, we've covered stories like this before, but I don't think I've ever... Um, spoken to a husband and wife um, who've been involved in um, altruistic organ donation. Um, so now, so so what, what, what were you thinking, um, Brina, because you're, now you're married and you're young and I suppose people are asking you about it, although it's a bit annoying about family. And, and um, was that a consideration? Well, I suppose we were kind of, that was our main reason for pushing doctors and annoying them for so much, because uh, we did want to start a family and, you know, even plan for one or think about the future if we were lucky enough. But that wasn't really an option when before pre-transplant. Yes. Um, so you kind of have that uncertainty. But now, like, not that it's not complicated now, it is a conversation we are able to have, which is right. um, nice to finally take control a little bit more of our own lives again, yeah. rather than relying on hospitals and stuff but <laughs> uh, and and I know Shane we just better tell you, organ donation is hugely important and I just I, I say it every time but it's important that you have the chat with your family because even if you carry a card and people should sign up for cards and even if you have the little number on your driving licence still when it comes to the day the family have to decide they have to give the okay um so it's important to have that chat. Uh, listen, uh, congratulations again, Breen and Shane. Uh, beautiful photographs. They're there on page three of the Examiner today. Uh, you're, you're a lovely couple and what an amazing thing to do for the person you love most. Uh, give, them, give them a kidney. I know that sounds a little bit odd, but it's, it's, <laughs> it, it is a wonderful thing to do. Uh, Breen Reynolds and Shane Hunter on The Ray Darcy Show. Michael Flatley's big screen debut has had varied reviews, but by all accounts, the trilbies, fedoras and Panama hats on display make quite an impact. And if hats can gussy up a cinematic bomb, imagine what little accessorising can do for that old coat. On Today with Claire Byrne, Barbara Power, fashion editor with the Irish Independent, and Darren Kennedy, presenter and fashion entrepreneur, 
shared tips for making sure you're always camera ready. Now, I haven't seen Michael Flatley's movie and some of the photographs look rather tragic, I think. But, you know, he's he's a he, but he's a showman. Don't and hold you, back. You remember in, in his show, he had whole sequence <laughs> with hats. And um, I must say, I love a good hat. And we had a photograph at home of my dad, you know, coming up to Dublin to train as a tailor in Pims and coming across O'Connell Bridge with his fedora. He was a tailor, isn't that? He was training to be one. Yeah. Then he ended up with the sweet factory. But right. that was another story. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, if you look at all the Michael Collins uh, images recently in the newspapers on his bike outside number 10 wearing his fedora. And of course, it helped. You know, it was a great way of not being spotted by the by the police here but um, hats have really come back into vogue and you know they kind of went on the wane after the Second World War because I think they said men were fed up of wearing hats and caps during the war and they kind of waned Mm -hmm. of course we had them in Mad Men Madison Avenue but since then I think since the 60s they have tailored off and uh, you know then the Peaky Blinders hats came mm. back in and, yeah. and the baseball caps. And um, of course, during lockdown, they were great for women like myself who were letting the roots grow out. And I put on my fedora. I had a straw one and a wool one and came out emerged. A little gray. resurgence then. But for men, just thinking about what Barbara's saying there about historically, the men wearing the hats and the suits, just they really finished an outfit, didn't they, Darren? They did. They really, you know, they literally top it off, you know. <laughs> and you look back to Mad Men. I mean, that's the era for me, you know, that show that we all loved where they've got these tailoring and Don Draper always finished his look with a hat. hat. And it was also a greeting as well. Yes. When a lady would walk into the room, he would tip his hat and it was really nice. And I think to go back to Barbara's point there of them being a associated with a uniform is really interesting. And yesterday, actually, I was in Ranla and I noticed two guards came by in their new uniform. And one thing they didn't have was a hat. So the new guard uniform doesn't actually have a hat. Well, at least the iteration I saw yesterday, they weren't wearing one. And I just think for men, especially, we have so few kind of accessories in our armory. Okay, ladies, they grow their hair, they dye their hair, they curl their hair, they wear makeup, they change their lipstick. For guys, really, we only have, well, for a lot of guys, the clothing that we choose to wear. And for me, hats have always been a key part of my wardrobe. And when I, it's interesting because you you wore yours during lockdown to cover a change in colour hair. I actually stopped wearing hats <laughs> because when I was younger, I started going grey around the temples in my early 20s. And I felt that the, the hat was kind of drawing attention just to the grey. So I stopped wearing them <laughs> for that reason. But now I'm embracing the silver and uh, I'm back on hats. For men, though, this season in particular, I think we're seeing a real resurgence in terms of like the fedora, uh, obviously the flat cap for a certain type of guy. But in terms of fashion, Western Americana is having a moment. And it's something that I had noticed on the guys out and about in London or New York a couple of years ago. And like everything in fashion, menswear takes takes a lot longer to trickle down to the high street. Mm-hmm. You've bucket hats, you've, you know, which maybe for a guy I'm, of a certain I'm, age. I'm still stuck on Western Americana. What does that mean? Okay, so it means kind of like, oh, the simplest kind of explanation would be kind of cowboy inspired. Stetsons. Yes, yes. And, they, and obviously guys are wearing smaller brimmed hats. And actually, um, two great brands of Americana, Wrangler and Gant, are collaborating for the very first time, which launches this week, believe it or not. Um, and that just shows you where it's going in terms of popular culture. Um, and then the baseball caps. Actually, baseball caps just seem to be everywhere at the moment. Um, 
I don't know. They kind of flatten my hair a little bit too much for me. I like a looser <laughs> hat. <laughs> Rihanna's wearing these big faux fur hats. Yeah. hats. So they'll probably be a big thing now. They will. I'm all about the commute because I'm about to go back to work in Talbot Street and Media House for the first time in two and a half years. So I'm getting all geared up and I, I fully expect to see lots of those hats. And there's a great Irish designer, um, Rachel McGuire. And she was in Brown Thomas with her Rashid hats and they're big, exaggerated hats, furry hats, just like mm-hmm. uh, Rihanna wears. But um, you will also see trapper hats on your commute. and Ears um, covered. Ears Love covered. Good for the bike. Good for the bike. And um, I was interviewing, um, obviously, you know, I would judge a lot at Ladies Day and I mean at the horse show. We judged the horse show a we few did. years ago. Yeah. Uh, but, but like we saw 400 hats in four hours recently and like it was incredible. <laughs> um, but going back to Philip Tracy, he always says, you know, ignore the rules. Just keep trying on hats. And yes, there are days when hair is not enough. You need a headpiece. So I would get a lot of mothers of the bride or mothers of the groom approach me saying, what should I wear? And I think just from the kissing point of view, if you wear a hat with a tilt, people can come in on the side and give you a peck in the cheek. Whereas if you have a full brimmed hat. People can't get near you. People can't. So you maybe might that's want a good that. thing. You might want that. Yeah. <laughs> and the Queen always made a point that her brims were not too big because she knew people wanted to see her. Mm-hmm. And of course, she was brilliant at accessories. <laughs> Do hats suit everybody? No, they don't. Let's mm. call it spade a spade. Some hats do not suit. Like I, I know certain type of hats I cannot wear. Um, and some people just don't have a head for hats. That's, <laughs> that's kind of it. And then some people should wear bigger hats. But I've been talking about that again. No, I just, and I think, you know, some people talk about, oh, I'm not sure if this suits me or if this looks good. I always think just go with your gut. If it feels good, wear it. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't, don't. It's very simple. Let's talk about some other accessories now. Uh, brooches. I mean, considered very important in the 1940s and 50s where you had a brooch on the suit. But... Back, I'm you looking say? at your collar there. Is that a brooch? Oh, yeah. or a no, button? it's a it's a button. It's a gold button at the top. Very nice. Yeah, it's like a bro- it's a brooch like button, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think brooches are great, and actually, brooches are coming into menswear, which is yes. really nice. It's you know you're seeing guys really embracing um, their individuality with their look on the lapel nice. or on the lapel, or it could be on a shirt, it could be on a hat, actually, or with something. I guess the guys who are a little bit more fashion forward might even wear a brooch on a neck piece, mm-hmm. on a neck scarf, you know, really elevate the look and adds texture and, and interest. And I suppose it's a, it's a piece of jewellery that, you know, they may not want to wear cufflinks. Exactly. So it's like cufflinks for the lapel. Mm-hmm. I know uh, Catherine Condell, the stylist, ha- has been doing it, oh, I'd say for 20 years and I love her style. She'll group together brooches on a lapel like a little family and they need not be pieces of jewellery they could just be badges you know the conversation points um, but I, I, I like that she's idea She's an expert and has a she great is, eye I mean yeah. are some people just good at accessories and others are not? Well, I think during lockdown, we all discovered things at home. I know I managed to kind of link up earrings that have been missing for years. And I found brooches belonging to my grandmother. And, you know, one of those could be on the coat now heading back on the on the Lewis and What was it Coco Chanel said? Put everything on and then look in the mirror and take something take away. Take one thing yeah. out, take the last thing Because you can overdo it, can't you, with the accessories? Yeah. No, absolutely. And, and you know, if you over-accessorise, uh, you can look a little tragic. I know the accessory that I love at the moment is, um, I love a fingerless glove. 
because I inherited the the the, the rheumatic wrists. So I, I learned a long time ago that, you know, I had so many odd gloves because I'm right-handed and I obviously took one glove off. But if they're fingerless, you can keep them on and they keep you nice and warm. So these are leather ones from Paula Rowan, who is a fantastic mm. accessory story. Mm-hmm. I mean, Lady Gaga has gone on tour, all her dancers wearing gloves by an Irish woman based uh, in Clarendon Street. I mean, it's an incredible fantastic. success story. And you find for the wrists that they keep yeah, them they warm? Yeah, they just keep me warm, you yeah. know, and maybe a little cashmere glove later on. But And I love... Being a woman of a certain age, I like to hide my creppy neck, so I, I like little half scars. Being very hard on your neck. Yeah, <laughs> you look fantastic. But I just, I just, you know, the simplest of outfits, you know. Just That's a beautiful know. scarf. This is a beautiful scarf. I would absolutely wear this scarf. I'm looking for a scarf actually for Sunday. Um, and I love tying a scarf around my neck, like a little... Um, uh, bandana oftentimes yeah, exactly. uh, loosely around my neck so if yeah. I want to wear a suiting but kind of dress it down a little bit yeah. I'd switch out a shirt um, and probably put a t-shirt on and perhaps uh, a bandana loosely tied around the neck Well, I tell you um, what, and it now, just picks up a bit of interest and colour I'm going to gift that to you for the Image Beauty Awards because I know you're presenting and, and there's a double <laughs> This there's... is great I'm, get, I'm leaving with merch But what's, <laughs> why I love this and here's a nice twist for you that is a Harry Clark stained glass scarf made by Jennifer Rothwell from um, Artane and of course you have a doggy Harry so I there's... do it's absolutely it's beautiful, beautiful Barbara absolutely stunning but it's a great way for, for, for lads as well to add a little bit of interest and um, intrigue perhaps to mm-hmm. look Mm-hmm. Let's move on to bags now. Um, bags that are in season coming into the autumn and winter. Is there a change? Um, well, I think, um, you know, the crossbody is with us forever. We loved during lockdown, you know, um, being hands free. Can't not have a crossbody. Just can't be dealing with bags and hands, you know. Yeah. Um, I'd say there were a <laughs> few groans when people, you know, they had cleared out their wardrobe and they said, oh, I'll never use that old baguette bag from the early noughties. Well, girls, they're back in. Okay. So it's the little curved bag mm-hmm. that sat in under the uh, arm. So and smaller ones. Because yeah, that, that kind debate, of present you know, bag. If you have a bigger bag, you'll just fill it up. Yeah. If you have a smaller bag, do you overfill it and it ends up looking, you know, yeah. like everything is falling out of it? Well, one of the big trends this season is uh, is the double bag. So, you know, we had double denim, so you have a double bag. Um, right. So um, one that, of does one that of mean, them, does that mean two bags, Barbara? Yeah. Oh, no. So like one of them looks like a saddle bag, like a cowboy. We're back yeah. to the cowboys yeah. again. So you have a bag that sits here and here. You can wear a diagonal crossbody. So you look like a gunslinger, you know, and, you know, one could be the phone one. Personally, I think people will go for the backpack and a small bag. For, you know, again, I keep going back to the com- commute, but let's be practical here. You know, um, the fashion trends, we want them to work for real lives, not that's the it. lives we aspire to have, you know. Mm-hmm. But the little baguette bag, that's a good tip. That well, that, that, see a lot let's of just around. say that's come back mm-hmm. in. So has the hobo bag, uh, which is the more slouchy bag. Mm-hmm. And um, let's remember bags are back for men, too, in a big way. And, you know, I actually... I've had this for years. It's just a little crossbody um, bum bag, as the Americans would call it. But it's just handy. I And I love a bag with loads of pockets and they have to be zip pockets. If there's not a zip on a pocket, I'm out. Yeah. Because it has to be practical. Um, and I think, you know, at Louis Vuitton obviously mm-hmm. lead the march on, on baggage, you know. 
Um, and uh, they do it so well. And I think, you know, when we look at popular culture and all our favourite kind of artists and musicians mm-hmm. or whatever, they're always with these big bags now. Mm-hmm. And I think um, men have, or at least are starting to embrace the practicalities of a bag. Darren Kennedy and Barbara Power on Today with Claire Byrne. Infertility has profound emotional and financial implications and can be deeply traumatic, with the average round of IVF costing at least €6,000. And Ireland remains one of the only European countries with no funding for fertility treatment. And on Drive Time, Katrina Fitzpatrick from the National Infertility Support and Information Group told Cormac all about the group's plans to challenge this. It's very difficult to put a number on how many people actually have to deal with this. The HSE estimates that around one in six heterosexual couples in Ireland may experience infertility. But that's really not a number, it's more of a guesstimate. We know that in 2019 there were over 11,000 IVF cycles taking place in Ireland. But really there's a huge absence of data in relation to this. We know that many couples go abroad. We know that many single people... Um, you know, have no option to start a family whatsoever because of the cost. Yeah. So numbers really are very hard to come by. So whatever whatever the numbers are, uh, it's the the impact is very deep. It's traumatic emotionally and financially, as we mentioned at the very start. Six thousand euro, the average cost of uh, um, a round of IVF. So what are you requesting then, Katrina, in the budget? Yeah, we're requesting a number of things, but I mean, obviously we're looking for publicly funded um, infertility treatment for people. Uh, Like Ireland is one of the very few European countries that doesn't provide any kind of funding. And this is recognised by government. We met with Stephen Donnelly in recent months. He recognises this and is committed to changing it. It's also in the programme for government. But our, you know, our group was founded 25 years ago and we've been campaigning for this ever since. Mm -hmm. The group, one of the founders of the group, Helen Brown, who's still very involved in the group, was part of the commission that reported on this in 2005. So you know, we're very far on from when this was originally looked at. And while we get a lot of sympathy and encouraging words from politicians, we're just not getting the action that we need. So you're looking for, for funding and also the legislation, the long promised legislation. That's exactly it. I mean, like we know the two go hand in hand, but you know legislation takes a long time to progress through the Oireachtas. And while we certainly agree there needs to be legislation in this area, it's a complex area. Time is just crucial for people when they realise that they can't start a family without some sort of assistance Mm -hmm. and therefore end up going, you know, to their GP who refers them to a private clinic. And from there on, everything that they do must come out of their own pocket. They must pay for absolutely everything themselves. There are two small kind of initiatives in place that does help. One is the Drug Treatment Purchase Fund, um, which helps with the cost of medication. The second is you can get a tax rebate. But obviously, that's once you've paid, you know, €6,000 up front a lot of the time. So, I mean, it's a hugely costly um, situation to find yourself in. And we would have people come to our support meetings who talk about selling their second car, going for a credit union loan, borrowing money from family, and in a time that's, you know, incredibly stressful because yeah. nobody or a lot of people don't expect to find themselves in this situation. And with no Having guarantees to, at the end of it as well. There's absolutely no guarantees. And as time goes on, your chances do lessen, which is why, even though we're very supportive of this legislation, we want to see an interim mechanism in this budget that will allow government fund the clinics, 
not the public, you know, not, not people out of their own money fund the clinics mm-hmm. in order to provide that treatment. Okay. We obviously want to see treatment provided, you know, in the public health system. That's the ideal model. But the ideal model is years away and we need something to bridge that gap. OK, so look, uh, you say you met with Minister Stephen Dunley over the summer and you got a, a commitment in terms of the legislation at the very least. And we'll see what happens, Katrina, uh, in the budget as well. But um, we'll, we'll talk around that time, I'm sure, to get your reaction. Katrina Fitzpatrick. Yeah, can yeah. I just say that we do have a helpline? Can I give out the Absolutely, phone number, yeah. which is 87 And our website has a web chat on it. For anyone who's listening that's going through this, we are a support group available to you. And that was Katrina Fitzpatrick from the National Infertility Support and Information Group talking to Cormac on today's Drive Time. Now, I mentioned rock royalty earlier, but perhaps a witness to rock and roll history is closer. During the afternoon, Ray Darcy had the privilege of chatting with Pete Best, a.k.a. the Fifth Beatle. Later this month, he's sharing many of his incredible stories in an audience with Pete Best. But Ray began by getting him to clear up an important point. Some places on the internet say you are the fifth Beatle. Yeah. Other places say that somebody else is the fifth Beatle. So are you or are you not the fifth Beatle? In chronological order, I'm the fifth Beatle. You are the fifth Beatle. Yeah. Okay, yeah. right. Because there was uh, Brian Epstein, George Martin has mentioned, and then uh, Stu, what's his surname? Stu... Well, it's Stu Sutcliffe. Stu Sutcliffe, uh, yeah. yes. Um, and yeah. also Neil Aspinall won, wore that uh, title for a while as well. Right, OK. Uh, so you, you, you'll take the, the, the moniker of uh, Fifth Beatle. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll claim that one. Fifth you claim Beatle. that one, yeah. Yeah, next Beatle, OK. Anything well, well, to go by, well, which yeah. Is, which is brilliant. It's hard, it's hard for me to get my head around the fact that I'm talking to you, Pete. And do people react to you like that? Uh, not really, No. no. <laughs> 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 I'm just putting it down to Ireland, you know. But you know, we're all the same, you know. Yeah, we are all the same. We yeah. are all the same. So I was saying, 1960 to 1962. Yeah. So y- y- your mum is a huge part of the story, and indeed the Beatles story, isn't she? Because she set up this Casbah Coffee Club yeah. in the basement of your house in Heyman Heyman's Green. Yeah, actually, how she actually got the house before it became the Casbah is quite an incredible story, Ray. Um, she liked the GGs, and uh, she'd seen this house in Heyman's Green. And she fell in love with it, went and saw my father. Her father turned around and said, no, I'm not buying it, it's a big white elephant. So little did we know, uh, she went and pawned all her jewellery. And there was a horse running in the, I think it was the 1954 derby, uh, being run by an apprentice jockey called Lester Pigott at uh-huh. that time. Uh, the horse was called Never Say Die, she liked the name of it. It was a rank outsider, 33 to 1. And uh, we were watching it, and as it came... Towards the finishing post, <laughs> she was getting more and more animated, and then it, it won, and she screamed out, "I've won my house!" And then she told us exactly what had happened. She pawned every damn bit of jewelry that she owned, and put all the money on that on the a bet with for never say die, yeah. and that's how she won Heyman's Green. Wow! Yeah. Uh, and, and you had a lad, large basement, um, which now has a plaque on it and people can visit. Um, mm-hmm. and, and in that, she set up the Casbah, which the, well, explain to me, because I'm a bit younger than you, or what, what the coffee club scene was. Coffee club scene at that time was basically minimal. Uh, a couple from the national chains like Cardoma and Espresso and all that kind of stuff. So I, setting up a coffee club in a rural district, uh, because we were about three miles outside of town, was something which was basically unheard of. It was right. a hell of a gamble. But it was something she wanted to do. She had a dream. She saw it on the television. She'd seen the two eyes and she she foresawed 
you know, the, the cellar's been turned into the Casbah. And we, you know, lo and behold, it was a family constructed job. We did it all ourselves. She unloaded that one on the next day as well, you know, because we asked to be turned down and said, who's going to, you know, who's yeah. going to do it? And she said, you are. So I said, OK, thanks, Mum. You and know, what, and what age, went with me. What age you at that stage, Pete? I'd be about 16 at that time, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So still a snotty-nosed kid, yeah. And the idea was then that local bands had come and they'd perform. And it got to a stage where there were bands on every night. It did, yeah. It went from one band, you know, the Quarrymen, which was the opening band. And funnily enough, they had no drummer, just uh, John George Paul and Ken Brown. And then it went from, you know, the, the Saturday night opening, it became the weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then eventually her pipe dream came true, which was giving, you know, bands in Liverpool a platform to play every night of the week. Right. And and did the Casper come first or did you your drumming come first? Which came first? Oh, the Casper came first, okay. yeah. And yeah, then yeah. you were looking at this and you're going, oh, I'd like a bit of that. Well, it, it all happened funnily. Um, the Quarrymen had a bit of a dispute over money with Mona, so they stopped playing there. Mona's your mum, yeah. Mona's yeah. me mum, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, Ken Brown, who was the, I suppose, the guy who was left, you know, alone, he came up to me and turned around and said, Mo's in a bit of a mess, Pete. Uh, we haven't got a band to play. So, should we form one? So I said, yeah, sounds a damn good idea, Ken. So I knew a couple of guys called Chaz Newby and Bill Barlow. They were great musicians, so persuaded them to join. I said, we're all set. You know, I said, there's only one problem, Ken. I said, you haven't got a drummer. So he said, no, he said, that problem's easily solved, Pete. He said, you're going to be the drummer. <laughs> so I said, there's one damn problem, Ken. I can't play the drums. <laughs> well, not as bad as that. Not as bad as that. Come on, Ray, give us a break. <laughs> uh, I said, I've got no damn drums. Right. So uh, I eventually started on a snare drum and cymbal. Right. And migrated up to, you know, this yes, yeah. sky blue Premier Pearl kit. Yeah. Lovely. My dad was a drummer. So one of my earliest memories of is my dad beating the BJs out of a drum kit in the, yeah, in, the, yeah. in, the, in, the in the living room or the front room. Um, yeah. yeah. Making uh, everyone friends. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 So so you, you, were, you were there and you were playing away. Was it the Blackjacks you were in? It was, yeah. That yeah. was the band we called ourselves, yeah. And, and how then, when the Beatles... Uh, they were called the Silver Beatles, decided to go to Hamburg. Uh, how then did they approach you to become their drummer? What happened there? Well, they'd seen me playing because they still used to frequent the Casbah. Uh-huh. You know, it was still a social club for them. And uh, they'd seen me playing. They liked what they saw. And then, of course, they had the offer to go to Germany and Paul got in touch with me. And he turned around and said, you know, uh, we've had the offer to go to Germany. Pete, how do you feel about joining us? So I said, yeah. I said, we've got to check it out with my own guys first, uh, which I did. And they turned around and said, Pete... Go with our blessings, you know, we don't want to become professional. So right. if it's something you want to do, go and do it. So the next thing you go and do is see your ma and da. And I went and saw them. My mum turned around and said, well, if you want to do it, Pete, go with my blessings, OK. Right. And my dad was sitting in the corner and he had a wry smile on his face. He turned around and said, where are you going, son? I said, Hamburg, Dad. He said, OK, two words of advice. Be careful. And he just smiled. My goodness me how true those words of advice came when we actually landed up in Hamburg and found out it was the Sin City of the world. Yeah. Absolutely he- fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> At your age, hedonistic and yeah, free love and all that, it was coming hitting that time, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, it certainly you, was. Yeah. Um, and so they were called the Silver Beatles. John Lennon, is it, or who didn't like the Silver Beatles names and changed it to just the Beatles? That happened when we were actually going over to Germany, uh, when we were in the van, because we got smuggled in by Alan Williams. We didn't have the right paperwork, but, right. you know, that's a complete different story. Um, when we were on the way over, the Silver Beatles 
And we turned around and said, no, you know, we don't like silver. We just want to become the Beatles. And uh, we were still builders, you know, the club we were supposed to open, the, uh, the Indra. The poster outside there still had us builders, the Silver Beatles. Ah. So I remember Johnny had a big black marker with him. And Johnny, he, you called him Johnny, did you? John? Yeah, John or Johnny. Johnny, uh, Johnny yeah. Lennon, Johnny Lennon. Johnny Lennon. Lennon. There you yeah, go. Yeah, right? yeah. Even that, that's so lovely to hear him call Johnny <laughs> Lennon. Brilliant. Go on, go on, sorry. And, uh, you know, he took this marker out and he turned around and said, nope, no longer silver, just the Beatles. And he struck the mm. silver out. Uh, and, and he became the Beatles ever since. And that was a steep learning curve. 281 gigs, you were doing it seven nights a week and hours and hours long. Mm. So so you, I say you arrived over there ropey, well not ropey enough, but like at the end it must have been tight as. Oh God, yeah. You know, when, when you think about it, it was just like constant rehearsal. We went over there, a very mediocre band. Mm. And, uh, you know, I was constant performing, playing every night as you turned around and said, we just honed ourselves, you know, we became yeah. this uncut diamond which suddenly became polished yeah. and the showmanship, the sound grew, you know, the music we were playing, yeah. the energy, the drive, the whole thing and we just became this savage, frenetic, you know, how could you put it, great rock and roll band. And you were which, driving it from the back, driving it from the back on the drums. Yeah, yeah, I had the, uh, which Liverpool people call the Atom Beat. Yeah. Or nicknamed the Atom Beat, yeah, so I was responsible for that, yeah. And Pete, was there any sense that you were involved in something that was very, very special, world special? The funny thing was, Ray, we knew we were going to be big. Uh, that goes without saying, whether that was big-headed, you know, mm. Liverpool arrogance, whatever yeah. the case might be. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think the the biggest we foresaw ourselves was being sort of top of the English charts or something like that. Yeah. What went on, you know, and the, the mercurial rise to become the icons of the music industry? No, never in a million years. And of course, that mercurial rise makes your departure all the more... Painful? Is it painful a word? Or <laughs> I don't well, know how it, to it, describe it, it. it. It's 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 one of many words it's been <laughs> yeah, used to describe it. Yes, yeah, yeah. You know. uh, so, so you, it, it strikes me from listening to you, being interviewed and reading reading some interviews with you, that mm -hmm. you were blissfully unaware that there was anything wrong. Yeah, I think that was the that was the dark somber side of it, Ray. Um, when I was called into the office by Brian Epstein, I just thought it was another you know, business chap because I'd handled the business side of things before, mm. you know, talking to promoters and that. And uh, when I went in, I could tell that it wasn't that normal, you know, wasn't a little, you know, chit-chat chit. And uh, he talked around the subject and then he basically turned around and he said, Pete, bad news for you, don't know how to turn around and tell you this, but I'm going to drop the bombshell. And it's like, and I think the key word was, it's already been arranged that Ringo will join the band on Saturday. And that was the first thing. What day of the week? What day of the week was that? That'd be. A you said Wednesday Thursday morning. You said, yeah, yeah, Wednesday. Wednesday we played Wednesday. Or yes, it was so either Wednesday or Thursday morning. And, yeah. and, and so on Saturday, Ringo was going to take over, being the drummer in the Beatles. Yeah, but the ironic thing was though, Ray, he turned around and said, "There's a couple of gigs which uh, you know I would like you to you know play till Ringo occupies the hot seat." And I turned round and said, you the must be joking. Yeah, you must be joking. You know, so... Uh, You're fired, but will you help us out for a couple of yeah, games there? Yeah. <laughs> Go so, away. Uh, yeah. You know, but he must have foresaw what my answer was going to be because uh, he had Johnny Hutch, you know, from the big three, a great band. Uh, he was on the same bill, okay. so... 
He stood in when I wasn't there. Now, you went on to, to set up Pete Best and the All-Stars and you were on the same bill as the Beatles. Um, so you would have passed the lads backstage. Yeah. But here's yeah. the thing, Pete Best. Since that meeting with Brian Epstein in mm. 1962, around August, you yeah, yeah. haven't spoken to Paul McCartney. I haven't spoken to any of them. You know, Paul included. Simple as. As you mentioned before, played on the same bill as them two or three times. Came second to them in the Mersey B. Paul, which is high as, you know, you could get to yeah. them in those days. Um, but as, you know, we were going off stage or I was going off stage, they were coming on. And we passed like ships in the night. And there's been no communication ever since. And you can hear more of Pete's incredible stories as he tours with an audience with Pete Best. He's in Wexford's Riverbank House Hotel and Dublin's Lost Lane later this month. And that's it for today's Playback Daily. Remember, you can listen back in full to any of today's shows over at rte.ie slash radio one or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Thank you.